morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever or whenever you are, ladies and gentlemen. This is Sports Crunch with D. Crom. I'm your host, David Cromwell. The 2020 NFL season may be just a week away, but football just feels secondary right now. We remain dealing with an unprecedented pandemic with the novel coronavirus, and our country is at an overall breaking point. With the most consequential presidential election in American history since the Civil War fast approaching, and America more divided than ever since then, now is not the time to stick to sports. It is time to have uncomfortable conversations with people you may disagree with on many things in order to help bridge these divides. And that is why I was pleased to have Matt Makoviak join me for a special episode. Matt is an Austin, Texas, and D.C.-based Republican strategist. He is the founder of Potomac Strategy Group and is currently the chairman of the Travis County GOP in Texas. Matt has worked for United States Senators Kay Bailey Hutchison and Conrad Burns, Governor Sean Parnell of Alaska, and the Department of Homeland Security in the administration of George W. Bush. On top of it all, Matt hosts his own podcast, Mac on Politics, which you're highly, highly encouraged to check out on iTunes. We discuss the sporting world's response to the Jacob Blake shooting, nightmare scenarios for the 2020 election, and bipartisan solutions to avoid them, a little bit about the prospects for his Pittsburgh Steelers this season, and a lot more. So without further ado, here is my interview with Matt Makoviak. Matt Makoviak, it's a pleasure to meet you. Welcome to Sports Crunch. Hey, thanks, David. Good to be with you. Good to have you as well. And uh, last week, the sports world briefly hit the pause button in the wake of Jacob Blake's shooting, starting with the NBA. As a result, it was announced that all NBA clubs intend to use their arenas as voting locations for the general election, whether it be for voter registration drives, in-person early voting, or election day voting, and or having county officials there to collect completed absentee ballots. And given all the issues in red tape with voting by mail, and I'm not just talking about the issues with the Postal Service here, I'm talking about the fact that a lot of people just don't know how to follow the rules, and, way too, and Democrats are far more likely to get rejected uh, it, their absentee ballots rejected, so so it's a lot more than just the Postal Service. Don't you think voting in person at one of these sports arenas is one of the best ways of voting imaginable, especially during a pandemic? Well, sure. I mean, anything that, that makes it easier for people to legally vote, I think, is is something we should all, you know, celebrate and encourage. Um, I, you know, I, I mean, I did, I am a little bit, I had to laugh a little bit at that because initially, uh, you know, they spent Democrats spent about a month trying to convince us the only safe way to vote was to vote by mail, uh, and now I guess they're saying it's okay if we vote in in you know large venues. Look, it's up to the counties to ensure that people can vote safely. Um, I can tell you, I vote early in every election, primary, primary runoff, general election. I vote on the first or second day. I do it because I hope. Number one, you never know if you're going to get busy or have an injury or have to travel or get sick. Uh, but number two, I, I kind of hope that by voting early that I, I maybe get less voter, uh, you know, election candidate communication because I'm hoping the campaigns are taking people out that early voted. But I will tell you, when I early vote, there's almost never anybody there. Uh, we have three, generally three weeks of early voting in Texas, two weeks in the primary, three weeks in general election. And, I, you know, I, I just personally have never felt like COVID was a greater threat to me in voting on the second day of early voting than it would be going to the grocery store or the pharmacy. Um, so. Again, look, I, I think it's a creative way to use venues that are probably not going to be in use. I think the NBA is not going to probably come back till perhaps after the election uh, or or even in December, or maybe they're just going to take a couple of days off. I don't know how that's going to work in terms of the schedule. Um, but sure, a large venue would make it easier to have social distancing, depending on how it's set up. 
so it's a very good thing. I mean, we should, you know, it's, but again, it's up to the counties, whether it's a grocery store, whether it's a school, whether it's, you know, a warehouse somewhere. I mean, they need to find locations. I'll tell you in, in, in central Texas where I am, uh, we generally vote in, in grocery stores. It's one of the, the most popular and, and um, easiest places to vote. And I will tell you in our primary in March, when COVID started, uh, we voted in grocery stores, the primary runoff, which was in, um, in July, it should have been in May, but it got delayed to July. Uh, they got, they did not allow grocery stores. So a lot of people didn't know where they were supposed to vote and there was a lot of confusion. So there is going to be some education required with letting people know what the locations are and when they're open and what the hours are. But generally speaking, I think it's a creative way, um, to, to increase participation. And that's something we should all want. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, my brother happens to be, a, a phone banking North Carolina for on the democratic side. And, and he agrees with me. I told him to only, if you want to vote absentee, even Louis DeJoy himself said, apply for your ballot now. So you get much time to, to, to fill it in and return it by whatever means the law in your state allows to, whether it be backed by USPS or turn it to your county registrar's office or a Dropbox if your county and or state uh, allow it. But only if you have a, a pre-existing condition that makes you more vulnerable to COVID like diabetes or asthma or currently going through chemotherapy and whatnot, or you're elderly. But for young and relatively healthy people like you and me, there's no reason why we should uh, take part in early voting where there's not going to be as long lines as on election day and where people are going to wear masks and the equipment's going to be sanitized. So there's no reason for uh, people like us to, uh, to to vote in person. And it also lessens the load on the Postal Service and the county in particular. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think it's important, even though this is a, a somewhat you know sports-focused podcast, I think it's really important for everyone to understand the distinction between, you know, universal mail ballots and absentee voting. Absentee voting is, is different. There are pretty strict limitations to absentee voting. You basically have to prove that you are going to be out of the area on election day to be eligible to vote by absentee. You have to request an absentee ballot. You have to receive it. You have to turn it back in. You have to do all that before the election. Universal mail ballots is different. Uh, rather than the voter requesting it, uh, what is happening in Nevada and California and some other places is they are quite literally sending ballot applications out, in some cases with personal information already pre-filled out, including date of birth, including address, including full name, full legal name, to, to people. And of course, people move, particularly now with COVID, a lot of people are in other places, uh, if they were in a high, uh, you know a high you know COVID area, maybe they're somewhere else out in the country, or they're maybe with family or something. So that's a different matter altogether. And Republicans are not saying, and the president's not saying all mail ballots are bad. He's saying universal mail ballots uh, would enable would make it easier for fraud to occur. The data is not going to be perfect. People are going to get ballots mailed to them at the wrong location. There will be some fraud where people try to return mail ballots to try to return more than one. And you can avoid all that by encouraging absentee balloting, and, which is perfectly fine, and, and which which our counties know how to do, by encouraging early voting, and by encouraging the counties to ensure that people can vote safely on election day. They're going to need more locations. They're going to need larger locations with more social distancing. All those things are, are really important. But but you're right. I mean, this is really about people that are high risk. Uh, for people who are not at high risk, you shouldn't be that concerned about voting, if, unless you're literally li living in your house and not leaving your house around the clock. Uh, you're not at any greater risk voting, or, you know, the second day of early voting than you would be going to the grocery store, or the pharmacy, or running an errand. So if you are, if you do, if you're not over 65, and if you don't have uh, an underlying health condition that is that puts you in greater risk, uh, more than likely, almost surely, uh, voting is going to be perfectly safe for you. But if you do meet those categories of being over 65 or having 
um, secondary health issues, uh, that is where you want to be careful. Maybe you do request an absentee ballot and then you go drop it off at the post office and you do it as early as possible. I do think the post office is going to handle this. You know, when they were talking about uh, that a couple of weeks ago and all that, that controversy was going on, you could have 150 maybe 100 to 150 million, if everyone in the country voted by mail this election, which won't happen, but let's just stipulate that it does. You're talking about 100 to 150 million pieces of mail uh, handled uh, over the over the period of around a month. Uh, the post office handles, uh, uh, handles that much mail during Christmas by a factor of three or five. Uh, and, and that's on a, that's almost, I think that's on even on a daily basis. I think they handle like hundreds of millions of pieces of mail every day. So, it's honestly a rounding error. It's not a huge uh, difference. Now, if you aren't saying, po- you know, if they were saying ballots aren't first class, that means they would take longer to arrive. They've now gone back on that. It is going to be first class, which is a very good thing. There is a question about how late they can arrive. If do they have to be postmarked by the election day? Do they have to be postmarked the day before? Do they have to be re- do they have to be received by the election day? These are the questions that states and counties have to determine. Uh, and this does get to the issue that President Trump raises, which is how do we know and when will we know who won if if a lot of people do vote by mail? Uh, is there potential for fraud? If you know that one candidate is up by 300 votes, could you find 300 more votes uh, over a period of days? I, I'm not you know, saying that this is going to happen, but there's that you increase the risk of it and you can increase the, the possibility that the electorate will not see the result as legitimate. And you know, irrespective of who you want to win and who you think should win, we all should want a result that the vast majority of people have confidence in so that we can unify the country and start to heal once the election's over. I'm glad you mentioned that up. And and for the record, I don't necessarily agree with the president on claims of fraud, although the risk of fraud is another debate. Uh, But uh, you brought up a good point. It's a nightmare scenario that keeps me up at night, frankly. And it involves this thing called the blue shift. And that happened in the Arizona Senate race in 2018, where we woke up the morning after the... uh, November 6th election in the midterms, Martha McSally was leading, but once the absentees were counted subsequently, they put Kirsten Sinema over the top. And if a similar scenario happened to Trump, which is possible given the fact that a record number of Americans are expected to vote absentee given the pandemic, it is obviously a virtual guarantee that the president's going to consider the election stolen. Uh, currently, 14 states, including some key battlegrounds, prohibit the processing of absentee ballots until the morning of the election. But Governor Tom Wolf of Pennsylvania has proposed that the state begin processing those ballots three weeks before the election, as opposed to the morning of, so they have a better chance of completing the count by election night or just the following day at worst. Do you agree with what Governor Wolf is trying to do, and should all other battleground states follow? Yeah, I mean, I think anything you can do to kind of move it up. Um, and increase uh, that window of time ahead of the election. Oh, look, I, the, the scenario you describe is one I've been concerned about too, and I've talked about as well. And I think the I think the, the odds are there's a pretty decent chance. We'll have to see how things go with the economy and COVID and the debates and all that stuff. But I think there's a, a, you know, a non-zero chance that Trump wins on election night and loses a few days or a few weeks later. And it might even be in that scenario that there's no fraud whatsoever or almost no fraud, that that was quite literally the, the real result. Uh, because Democrats may predominantly vote by mail or disproportionately vote by mail and that those mail ballots are going to come in over time uh, and that Republicans are going to disproportionately vote in person and those votes will be cast either early on election day and will be counted you know, by election night. You can imagine a scenario where even if that is all above board and the courts rule against lawsuits and, it, and, and the results are confirmed where I don't know about half, but maybe a third of the country doesn't accept that result, um, that is going to make things – really, 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 really difficult in this country. 
And I just don't see why we need that kind of scenario. I, I just don't see why it's necessary. Um, there has to be a way for people to vote safely. And it is incumbent upon the counties to ensure that that happens. Um, if they need more money, they need to talk to Congress and, and get that done in an emergency way. Uh, you know, everyone should want this to be done safely. Um, and in, again, for, I don't know why they haven't just said, first, first of all, in Texas, if you're over 65, you can vote by mail with no excuse whatsoever. It's only under 65 where you have to prove you're either out of the county on election day. Um, I forget what the second the second exception is, but it's I, I actually don't think there is one. I think you either have to be out of the, the county on election day, which allows you to vote absentee or you can only or you can vote by mail for, with no excuse if you're over 65. If you're under 65 in Texas, it is against the law to vote by mail, I, I believe is the law. Now, that's just Texas. Yeah. Um, you know, could you relax things in a, in, a, in a narrow way in specific cases if you have an underlying health condition? Um, you know, if there's some other very specific case, I just think two, three months before an election to change things and say, OK, instead of mail voting being 10 or 20 percent of the total, it's now going to be 75 percent. The counties are simply not going to be able to handle that. And the data is not ready for that. And their staffing is not ready for that. And their budgets certainly aren't ready for that. So the answer to me is not let's go from 10 percent mail to 75 percent mail and hope everything goes OK. It's to say, OK, counties. You need to find the largest locations, uh, you know, in, in your county, whether it's the college basketball arena, the college football stadium, the pro football stadium, uh, and find a way so that you can have hundreds, if not thousands of people safely voting, you know, you know every hour uh, and do it that way. Um, so the logistics of this are going to be significant, but this is why we have county clerks. It's why we have, you know, secretary of states in, in states that manage elections. Uh, it's time for them to, to do their job. Oh, I completely agree, and it's time for us as citizens to do our job as well because uh, most of the poll workers are over 65 and don't want to work because of COVID. Uh, don't you think both Republicans and Democrats alike need to be uh, telling, young, encouraging younger folks to uh, sign up to be poll workers and to count ballots if necessary? Yeah, you bring up a good point. I um, mean, we saw this in Texas. I'm sorry I keep going back to Texas, but it's my kind of my, my state, window yeah. into this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm also the, as you mentioned in the intro, I'm also the Republican Party chairman in my county here, and and we had a number of election workers in, I forget if it was in, I think it was in March, because uh, in March, they, we, we were the first Tuesday of March. And so this was like right at the very beginning of the coronavirus stuff. But we had a number of election workers that just called in and said, we're not coming in the morning of the election. Um, now, that's not going to happen here where it's going to be the morning of. But I do think you're going to have people who say, I'm, I just don't think it's safe. So, you know, we are going to have to find ways to recruit people, healthy people. Um, and generally, I can tell you, election workers are either people who don't work. Uh, uh, and are retired or, uh, or just, you know, people who are kind of very civically engaged and either take the day off or, uh, are able to get a day off or something like that. So it's a certain kind of person, right? Most people simply would not want to go be an election judge. It's actually really miserable. You're there from 7am to 7pm. You have to stay till everything's counted. You can be there till eight or 9pm. It's extremely long day. You may get a couple of bathroom breaks. I don't even know if you get lunch. I mean, it's really pretty miserable. And I think you get like 50 or 60 or 70 bucks for the day. Right. So it's 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 a lost day. But you do feel a patriotic sense at the end of that day, you know, I, that you kind of were a witness to democracy in action. And it's actually a very touching thing to see all these people come in and vote and to, and to you know, to cast their, their ballot. Um, but you're right. We're going to need people. And maybe that's a way we can, you know, uh, put college students to work. I mean, a lot of them are going to be on campus, even if they're not going to to to, to class in person in some cases. Um, you know, maybe that's something we can where we can take people who are not who are unemployed at the moment, given the, the high unemployment rate we're dealing with. 
uh, pay them maybe more money, maybe twice as much and for, for one day of work. So we have to be creative about that, but we have to make sure we have the election workers at the locations or this simply isn't going to work. Yeah, so let's talk uh, some election strategy for a minute. Uh, the last time uh, we had a Twitter exchange over the summer, we were in agreement of where the election was likely to end up. You said the president would end up winning the state of Texas by six to seven or eight points. And that, um, uh, by math, based on how far to the right Texas is the nation, translates to that four or five or six popular vote margin uh, for Biden to win by. But it's important to know, folks, studies have shown that Biden can win the popular vote by as many as seven million votes and Trump can still win the Electoral College, folks. So a five or six point with the popular vote does not lock it in for Joe Biden. But but the bottom line is, uh, I think we agree that this election has serious potential to be the closest electoral college margin since 2000 with George W. Bush and Al Gore. But for the president to break it open, arguably the biggest hurdle still facing the president is obviously COVID-19. From a policy perspective, what must the president do between now and November to prepare the country for the expected uptick of cases in the fall and winter, which could potentially overwhelm the health system again? It's a great question. Um, let me let me answer the COVID piece, but before I do that, let me talk about the electoral college and, and my just current current view of everything. Um, you know, you and I are taping this on the last day of August, and I feel like in the last you know month, week or so, this race has tightened considerably. I felt like Trump has kind of been ticking up a little bit uh, the last few weeks, but I really think the Republican National Convention changed the race a bit, and it went from probably being an eight or ten point race nationally to being a three to five point race nationally. Generally, the polling has shown that Trump is closer in the battleground states, is doing better in the battleground states than he is nationally. You know, you got to remember, Trump got 46 percent of the vote nationally in 2016, and he won the Electoral College. He actually won it fairly comfortably um, by winning Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, and Wisconsin, and then and then winning states like Iowa uh, that were, you know, by huge margins that were, that was a surprise, I think, to a lot of people. Um yeah, I don't think he's going to win with the same number of electoral votes this time. I think it'll be closer than that, as, as you pointed out. Um, if he wins, if you take away the three Midwestern states that he flipped, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, which he flipped by a total of 87,000 votes net uh, in 2016, take set those three states aside. If Trump wins everything else that he won last time, and really, as you talk about the, the states that are the most competitive, that's North Carolina and Arizona are the biggest question mark. But if he wins those states... All he has to do is win one of the three Midwestern states. And so, you know, people show polls. He's down in this, you know, down in Michigan, down in Pennsylvania, down in Wisconsin. While I think he's gaining in all three, I, I probably agree. He's barely, he's narrowly down in all three. He only has to find a way to win one. And so I do think he has, at the moment, a number of pathways to getting to 207 electoral votes. Um, how it all ends up is going to be a, a huge question mark. The Dems are trying to flip Florida. And if they do that, Trump is probably dead in the water. Uh, if the Republicans find a way to flip Minnesota, that's going to give him a number of other pathways uh, that he doesn't currently have. So there are a number of pathways. You can go to 270towin.com, which gives you a map and gives you some different scenarios. It's fascinating. You can actually look at scenarios yourself. I mean, there's a scenario where if, you, if Republicans win the one electoral vote in Nebraska, you could actually have a, a 271, 269, uh, or two, what would it be, 270, 268 victory for Trump, potentially. So I, I about your premise, though. I think this is going to be a very close electoral vote contest. One or two states, I think, will ultimately decide who wins and who loses. We may not know election night. We may not even know the next morning. But uh, but I do think it's going to be you know very close. I just think we're likely to have probably a, a fairly clear winner, even if it's only one or two states. Now, to your question on COVID, this is central. Um, and I think one of the really important things Trump did at the Republican National Convention is he made the race about more than just COVID. Um, in, in April, May, June, when he started really going going down, 
A lot of that had to do with negative perceptions to the federal response to COVID. And look, I think there are some very legitimate questions in that area. Why was he not more serious about masks? Um, you know, why did why we were kind of slow in March to really get started? Um, you know, there are other areas you could probably criticize here or there, uh, certainly. Um, but uh, what I think is clear is over the last two weeks, we've started to, to, to really get this to a much better place. The states that were having the toughest time uh, are now doing far better. Florida, Georgia, Texas, Arizona have seen their death rates drop 20 to 40 percent just in the last two weeks. Uh, we basically have this really um, in a much better place than we did a month ago. It still is an unbelievable, unacceptable tragedy that 180,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. Um, there are some questions about how many of those people died just from COVID versus uh, due to comorbidities. <clears throat> I'm not a you know truther on the numbers, um, but I, th I think there are a number of reasons why people died. Uh, but I think the, the biggest reason is that people who had weak immune systems or who had uh, as we said before, uh, underlying health conditions uh, were, were particularly vulnerable to COVID. Uh, and, and I think, I think in, in retrospect, when the history of this period is written, perhaps the single worst decision that was made was one that was made in New York, uh, New Jersey, uh, Michigan, and I think it was Connecticut. And that was to, to basically take COVID-19 patients and put them in nursing homes, which obviously uh, combined uh, very vulnerable populations with COVID-19. Um, but that, that, look, there's a lot of blame to go around. You can blame Cuomo, you can blame Phil Murphy, you can blame you know Gretchen Whitmer, you can blame the president, you can blame CDC. Uh, th this is a novel virus. Uh, it was not very well understood initially. It looks like it may be mutating. Uh, it looks like it actually may be more mild now than it was in March and April. But to your point, I think there is fear that in the fall, it could get worse, particularly if we have a bad flu season, which is expected. Uh, we know that this this virus. We think we know that when th that this virus, if you're outside and if they're if you're in temperatures over 80 degrees, that that it, that, that the tr transmission rate is, is considerably lower. In the winter, obviously, people are outside less, particularly in the Northeast. Uh, and so we know that people will be inside more, and we know that uh, that the it may be the transmission rate will go up. So that's why not just tr the, the the treatments, uh, which are the antivirals and and the treatments that are being uh, developed, which are going to basically help people who have COVID survive in much higher rates. Those are so important. And then, of course, the vaccine. Uh, and there are basically, uh, you know, three, primarily three vaccines that are in pretty advanced stage three development right now. Uh, Moderna, uh, the UK uh, Pfizer version that, that I think is the furthest along, uh, and then the Johnson Johnson uh, vaccine. And, um, and the United States is basically preparing in an unprecedented way to to gross manufacture six to seven of those vaccines so that if one or two of them ends up getting approved, we're already ready with millions of doses. I imagine in the early stages, you will see uh, high risk uh, populations and frontline workers, uh, people in hospitals, nurses, people in um, ambulances, policemen, firemen, things like that will probably be prioritized. But to your point on, on the president, look, uh, I think one of the things that's changed in the last few weeks as he started doing these several times a week press conferences is that he's been more sober about COVID-19. He has been pretty uh, insistent in the last uh, two or three weeks that masks need to be worn, that he is going to wear them, that others should wear them, and that there's an advantage and there's nothing wrong with it. I wish he'd done that three three months ago. I think it would have been a very positive thing. Uh, but he, he didn't for whatever reason. He didn't feel like he needed to because he gets tested all the time and everyone in contact with him gets tested. But a little more sobriety about COVID I think would go a long way. A little bit less in terms of over-the-top positivity, 
I think would go a long way. Um, we need to stop talking about, you know, when the vaccine is going to be ready. Nobody knows. Uh, we hope it's by the end of the year. You're seeing more money, more time, more expertise, more human capital, more talent, uh, more research than ever before. Probably than, than if you combine all the effort that's ever been put together in every vaccine in history and you combine that, it probably doesn't compare to what's being done at, uh, on a global level for COVID-19. So, so you, we are moving at warp speed as the administration wants to. <laughs> but if this election is fundamentally about his response to COVID, he's going to lose. Because you can't answer the question as to why 180,000 people have died satisfactorily. You just can't answer it. Now, if he can make this about whether you feel safe in your community, whether you, who you think the best person is to rebuild the economy, that's a much better ground uh, for him to, to campaign on. And so I do think over the last couple of weeks, COVID has decreased in the public consciousness. And uh, to a lesser extent, the economy and to a greater extent, these, 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 crime, these crime issues have increased in the, in the public consciousness. And I think that is uh, redounding to his benefit. I, I agree with you, and thank you for uh, sharing uh, your internal views uh, on the current state of, of the race, which uh, is subject to change uh, several times over these next uh, uh, two months. So we've got to be patient, but that's, I believe the race ends up in that neighborhood, as, uh, as you said. Uh, but uh, there are two other golden opportunities for Trump here on COVID. Uh, number one, uh, he could uh, do, do everything he can to like make sure that hospitals get the funding and the equipment they need in the next uh, relief bill uh, if uh, th they can get something done so they're prepared for a potential uptick in the wintertime. And I believe uh, it, the FDA granted uh, an emergency use approval for this uh saliva-based test uh, that the yeah. NBA was using. So if he could like get those tests to market very quickly and we jump from getting 775,000 people tested a day to over a million tested a day, and, and, and the experts recommend that if we get around a million people taking a test a day, that would help tremendously. And uh, if the president could do that, uh, he uh, eliminates a key part of that barrier to re-election. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, there's no question that rapid testing is a game changer. Uh, and if you think about it, it's a game changer in a number of ways, right? First of all, um, you know, you want to prevent someone from infecting someone else with COVID. And, you know, initially you really wanted to prevent it when they were not symptomatic, when they were asymptomatic. Like that's actually the worst, right? If you don't know you have COVID, then you don't know you're infecting other people. And you really don't know you have COVID if you're asymptomatic. If you have symptoms, maybe you think you might be, maybe you self-quarantine. Nobody who's asymptomatic is, is self-quarantining, right? There's no reason to. And so if you're taking the test, the nasal swab, and it takes three days or five days or seven days before you get an answer, I doubt very many people are self-quarantining over that period of time. Um, and, you know, you, you, you need a, you, you know, you need a, a I mean, what, what would the value be of a pregnancy test that takes a week for it to come back? Uh, what do you do in, the, in, the, in that intervening week? Um, I, you know, so there's no question that getting rapid testing that is uh, highly accurate, uh, that is produced at scale, that is widely available and that people have a lot of confidence in would be a game changer um, because that, that obviously would limit transmission. It would uh, perhaps allow people to start going, going back to large events. You know, one of the reasons why college football is going to look different this year and pro football is going to look different this year is that you're not going to have people in the stands. You're going to maybe have 25%. My beloved Pittsburgh Steelers are going to have zero people uh, in the stands uh, in September because that's what the governor of Pennsylvania has decided. Uh, my Texas Longhorns are going to have 25%. Um, you know, Probably people out there are wondering, when can I go to a concert again? When can I go to a funeral? When can I go to a large wedding? Um, you know, when can I do those things? And, and you know what the answer is? The answer is one of, one, when one of the following two things happens. One, there's a vaccine that has 
you know, uh, that is widely available and, and, and has been widely used. Like you're talking 80, 75, 80 percent uh, of the people taking it. The second possibility short of that would be when you have uh, rapid testing occurring at the point of entry. Right. Imagine if at your favorite college football team's home stadium, when you walked in for a home, the first home game of the year, everyone that entered had to take a had to take a rapid test. And if you tested positive, not only were you not allowed in, but you were immediately quarantined. I don't know what they would do with you, but somehow you would go to the hospital or go home or something. Uh, but if you knew that everyone in the stadium had been tested, every player, every referee, every person in the concession stand, every volunteer, every you know patron had been tested, there's no reason to wear a mask. There's no reason to not to, to socially distance if everyone had been tested. Now, I, I recognize, I mean, you're literally talking on the college football side to be talking about probably five to 10 million, maybe more than that, but maybe, you know, three to five, maybe seven million people being be tested on the average Saturday. I mean, that's an extraordinary increase based on where we are now, as you said, at, at uh, you know, 750,000 tests a day. But that's what it would take. And so I, I think we're probably still maybe a year away, you know, probably next fall, maybe next spring before we can probably be in a position to do uh, that, those kind of large events again. And, and I think probably life is not going to feel normal until we get back to that place. Uh, absolutely. Glad we agree on that. And uh, let's talk about the issue that has uh, tight this race even more significantly so than the RNC. And it is the s- suburban um, and, and uh, urban unrest uh, due to the chaos and violence. And uh, in the aftermath of the unconscionable murder of George Floyd, we have seen America at its best. And at its worst, I personally have witnessed both Biden and Trump voters alike telling me that we need to significantly address the racial biases in our criminal justice system. But we've also have seen lawlessness and violence on both the extreme left and right alike. And in my opinion, neither Trump nor Biden has done a very good job in condemning the specific people who are perpetrating the violence on their side. Uh, whether it's Antifa setting fire to police facilities or armed white supremacists firing guns at innocent bystanders, every American, regardless of party, should be equally outraged at those instigators on both sides. And just this week, it, we, we paid a price where three innocent demonstrators, two anti-Trump demonstrators in Kenosha, and one pro-Trump demonstrator in Portland were killed. And this has only heightened my biggest fear that a wave of violence a million times worse capable of, heaven forbid, starting another civil war, uh, could erupt after the election, especially if it's super close and the outcome is a doubt, which it, the poll numbers suggest is c- seriously possible. What do both Democrats and Republicans need to do right now to ensure that does not happen? Because in my opinion, that's the worst case scenario we're looking at. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And and I'll tell you, um, you know, I don't think what Biden said today or last night and, and today of condemning all violence, that's not the answer. Um both sides need to do the hard thing, and that is Biden needs to tell, you know, some of these violent protesters on the left that they have to stop. And Trump needs to tell the Boogaloo boys and these militia groups that they need to stop. Um, and, and honestly, what I'd like to see is, is maybe Trump and Biden both put a statement out that, 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 that praises police officers. I think uh, Vice President Biden kind of did that today. He said, you know, most I think you might have said the majority or vast majority of police officers are good. And that's and that's absolutely true. Um, what's really sad about what's happened over the last few months is the real cause that George Floyd's outrageous death brought forth has been lost in all of this. You know, I remember I even had a podcast guest uh, named Ture, who's a kind of a social justice activist, uh, appear on my podcast, and um, 
you know, we talked, uh, at, you know, pretty, pretty honestly about some ideas that, that, that had real potential um, to try to prevent the next George Floyd type of situation from happening. Um, and, you know, that conversation, again, has really been lost. It's now about whether, you know, whether police officers are being threatened, whether public buildings should be burned, whether this is Trump's fault in some way. It's really not helpful. And I do think these crime issues, these safety issues in communities um, have given Trump new life. And I think they are making a difference in the suburbs. You know, the suburbs a couple of months ago were looking at the COVID issue and saying, OK, Trump has not done a good enough job here. It's time for someone new. They're now looking at it, uh, I think, through the lens of Kenosha. It's one thing where it happens in, in Portland. Portland is far away. Most people have never been there. They don't think it really represents their community or a risk to their community. When a town like Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is almost like any other town anywhere else, 100,000 people, pretty standard, you know, medium-sized city, that kind of feels like that could be any suburb or any neighborhood. If a town like that can go from being a quiet, you know, little town to being an urban war zone in two days, I think for a lot of people, they're saying, oh, my God, this could happen anywhere. And uh, so – I don't know. Maybe it's uh, naive or uh, Pollyannish to think maybe there's a way for Trump and Biden to get together on this for the good of the country and say, you know, both sides need to stop this and, to, and for both of them to try to clean up their own house. Uh, but look, this starts to me with this being a law enforcement issue. This is now, unfortunately, not about how we can sensibly uh, reform policing. Uh, that ship has sailed. It's not going to happen before the election. It may happen in the next Congress. Unfortunately, it's going to probably have to happen at the city level. This is now a question of whether you want order restored in these cities. And I don't know how Democrats get away with saying this is all happening in Trump's America when in many cases these mayors and these governors are denying Trump from being able to send the National Guard in to restore order. I just don't know how Ted Wheeler in Portland gets away with that. I mean, I think it just is a stunning double standard. Um, so I hate to see this. I mean, and I, I do worry this is going to get worse. I actually think it probably will get worse, that you're going to see more violence. And I think it is uh, unbelievably irresponsible of any mayor to play politics with public safety. Uh, when you are, when you have lost control of your city the way they have in Portland, the way they had in Seattle, where they had a autonomous zone for weeks, uh, where a murder occurred, where rapes were occurring, where the police couldn't even enter. Um, you look at what was happening in Minneapolis for a little while there until the National Guard went in. You look at what was happening in Kenosha for a couple of days until the National Guard went in. You look at the fact that, that murders are up in New York City, are up in Chicago, are up in Austin, uh, cities that have really gone in a progressive direction on, on you know, defunding the police. These issues are all connected. And um, it's a scary time. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be overly hyperbolic. Um, you know, we're living through a, a period of time now where uh, people are, are targeting police officers. Um, and where city leaders in some of these cities are doing everything they can to handcuff and limit the options that police have. Um, so, you know, you kind of hope for, you know, a, a Robert F. Kennedy kind of moment, right, where someone can rise above the politics of the moment and can, can, can uh, instill confidence but also instill calm uh, in these populations. You know, the, the Democrats pretend Antifa doesn't exist. The Republicans predict these militias uh, aren't dangerous. Um, look, a 17-year-old kid doesn't come in from Illinois to Kenosha if the police are, are, are keeping order in their city. And I'm not defending that. It's, it's illegal for a 17-year-old to have that weapon. Uh, I don't know whether he was in, engaged in self-defense or not. I, 
from what I've seen, it kind of looks that way, but I'll be very interested to see what that investigation finds. Uh, but it is up to these mayors and it's up to these police chiefs to ensure their cities are safe for their, for their citizens. I mean, Kenosha doesn't have a lot of Black Lives Matter activists in it. When this happened, you have people from all over the country who are being funded by the left who rush into these cities to create anarchy. And, and that's what's happening. And I think for a lot of people out there in their community, they're kind of thinking, good God, if something happens here, we're going to have our businesses boarded up. We're going to have police officers attacked and perhaps killed. We might, have, we might even have you know, innocent citizens uh, attacked and perhaps killed. And that's why you're seeing you know, gun purchases at record level. Ammunition pricing has, has gone through the roof, three, three to 400% increases. People are truly worried about safety in their home and in their community. And that is uh, a byproduct of what we've seen over the last couple months. And it is important for Republicans and Democrats uh, to agree that both sides are responsible for violence and leaders on both sides need to tell people to stop what they're doing and uh, channel all their energy on getting out to vote for the the candidate they want to win. And uh, the two enterprises who are absolutely having a ball seeing all this are the two biggest threats to our national security right now. I'm talking about Russia and China. And whoever wins November... You're not only going to have to deal with this pandemic and, and bring it to a close if, if a vaccine gets ready by 2021, as Dr. Fauci predicts it will, uh, but an increasingly dangerous and totalitarian Russia and China, and they are absolutely hell-bent on creating a new world order in their respective images. In recent weeks, Putin has threatened to deploy armies to Belarus to help Lukashenko, who um, you know, it, um, won another absolutely rigged election, an election that's going to be a million times more rigged than this one in the United States this year and he poisoned his chief rival Alexei Navalny and Xi Jinping has accelerated his crackdown on the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong and more alarming info and this makes me very disgusted about his genocidal campaign against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang has come to light. And, abs- and of course, uh, it is uh, widely agreed that China gravely misled us on the dangers of COVID-19. And I look at Putin and Xi as the two most dangerous men in the world right now, and uh, we need to act fast in order to stop them. What do you think should and can be done in order to do so? Great question. And I, I appreciate the frame uh, framing there as well. I agree with what, everything you said. I mean, look... Um, Trump has been pretty aggressive with China, and the intelligence community's uh, conclusion, which they presented to Congress a couple weeks ago, was that China and Iran had a preference for Biden to win, and that Russia was trying to interfere in this election, presumably because they have a preference uh, for Trump. Although I'm actually more convinced that Putin is is interested in sowing chaos in America and in weakening America than necessarily he is in uh, having a preference for Trump. I mean, I think if you and I know Democrats don't like to hear this, but if you look at what Trump has actually done, whether it be putting sanctions on China, whether it be on blocking the Nord Stream uh, pipeline, uh, which Russia was going to be providing natural gas to, to Europe, whether it be expelling diplomats, uh, you know, all, all these issues, the president, President Trump actually went further than Obama did in some of those issues. Now, rhetorically, there's no question he has been uh, more open to dealing with Russia. And I think that's really more from a negotiating standpoint. He wants to uh, improve relations. He wants to uh, perhaps bring Russia into the G8, which I think is a horrible idea, uh, personally. But uh, but Russia, you know, the the inclination is or the understanding is that they are likely to interfere again uh, in our election. Um, I don't believe their interference made a very big difference in 2016. If you look at the amount of money spent on Facebook, it was a rounding error. It was a couple hundred thousand dollars 
in a two billion or three billion dollar election. Now, if you want to argue um, that WikiLeaks uh, stealing Hillary's emails and releasing them was a was a significant act, uh, and if you believe that that was conducted by the FSB or by their agents, I, I do find that persuasive. Um, but uh, I also think conversely that you know it's not clear what China is going to do to interfere, but it's clear they have a preference. And, uh, you know, I don't, you know, their, their behavior as it relates to COVID-19, as it relates to South China Sea, as it relates to, 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 to Hong Kong, I mean, you, you know, as it relates to the Uyghurs, as you point out, it has been, has been awful. And I don't think there's much doubt that Trump has been tougher on China than probably any president in the modern era. Now, you can argue how, whether those, those, uh, the steps he's taken, you know, were effective or not. I mean, there's a debate to be had there. I'm not a huge fan of tariffs. Uh, I would I would like to see us try to isolate China more, try to uh, weaken its position in the region, try to strengthen uh, our allies in the region like Japan and like South Korea, like Vietnam. Um, I would like to see us even perhaps uh, restart the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, not because I'm a globalist, but because it was going to weaken China economically in the region and strengthen its uh, its uh, its competitors in the region. So. Um, but I, I do like your sober assessment. I mean, Putin and Xi are not our friends. In fact, you can argue pretty compellingly that they're our enemies, and they're certainly our adversaries. Uh, and I do wish that these very serious issues were taken uh, in a bipartisan way uh, up on Capitol Hill. It's one of the real failings of our current system. And part of the reason for that is that the country's more divided today than it's been in a long time. Um, and you know, the Democrats are, were convinced for some time that Russia was a real weakness for Trump. You notice at the Democratic convention, they didn't talk about impeachment at all. And that's not because they don't believe in it. It's because they're, they're convinced now it's a loser. Um, so they'll still talk about Russia from time to time, but I don't I don't think it is anywhere near uh, the compelling issue that they once thought it was. But I would sure love to see a select committee or a bipartisan task force focused on, on you know, isolating and combating Russia, uh, just like I would China. I mean, the Republicans put together a task force on holding China accountable on COVID, they tried to get Democrats to be part of it, and they, they refused. Uh, they want to blame everything related to COVID on Trump, and and uh, co- Republicans on Capitol Hill at least want to understand what did China know, when did they know it, why did they block uh, Taiwan from uh, you know re- releasing information when they knew as much as China did, Why what was the WHO's role in all of this. Look, these are not partisan questions. These are questions we need to know the answer to. If we want to hold China accountable, we need to know exactly what they did, what they knew, what they did with it. Uh, these are all very, very important questions. I think there's going to be a push in January to start a 9-11 commission uh, on COVID. And I, I'm not against that. I think we should learn from, you know, what did uh, what did the administration do? What did it know? What mistakes did it make? What do we need to do for pandemic pr- preparedness going forward? But I do think part of that should be China. We need to look at that. It's really important. Uh, you know, China shut down flights within China from Wuhan. Wuhan is a city uh, in the world that's larger than the New York, New York City. It's something like 25 or 30 million people. It's astounding how large it is. People have no idea how big of a, of a city it is. Uh, but once they, in, in December or January, when they knew that, that COVID-19 was happening, they shut down flights from, from Wuhan uh, across China. But they did not shut down flights from Wuhan to Europe or from Wuhan to the United States. And that is how you know the virus got, came here. Uh, so they obviously knew more than, 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 they, um, you know, when, than, than they claimed to know. But I agree with you. I think I think you and I are probably pretty pretty aligned here. Um, we, we we should be looking at these two countries and their two leaders as adversaries. We should be acting in a bipartisan way to isolate them, to undermine them, to strengthen our relationships with our allies. 
Um, I, I don't mind Trump uh, asking NATO members to spend three percent of their uh, their GDP on 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 defense and on holding them responsible for that. What I do mind is is you know saying things like NATO is obsolete and making you know statements about potentially pulling out of NATO or decreasing America's commitment to NATO. Uh, that is whether Trump intends that to be a gift to Putin or not. Uh, it, it has that effect, and that's certainly not something we should we should want to see. So uh, I don't know why these issues are seen as such a partisan lens. It used to be, you know, the Scoop Jackson rule used to be that politics ended at the water's edge. Um, that's uh, not not the case in the Trump era on both sides. And uh, we would be better, a better country if we looked at these issues in a sober way without partisan uh, a partisan lens uh, that we're looking through. Yeah, and Lindsey Graham uh, said, he tweeted a couple weeks ago uh, that, that the Trump administration has to keep a close eye on Putin sending his thugs into Belarus to help Lukashenko keep power. Uh, do you think uh, it would behoove uh, uh, the, the uh, Department of Defense uh, to b- make sure that we have some boots on the ground in Belarus to help defend the protesters against that corrupt regime, especially if Putin sends his goons in to help uh, keep it afloat? Yeah, I appreciate you asking about this because this is important, and I imagine a lot of your listeners, you know, may not know that much about uh, about uh, Belarus. You know, one of the you know formerly uh, uh, Soviet states that broke off. Uh, let me tell you why it matters. It matters because uh, we have commitments to NATO to defend NATO members, and so if Russia were to invade Belarus, just like if they were to invade Estonia, um, we would be duty bound to defend them with American troops uh, through NATO. And so, you know, we obviously should want, um, you know, fair elections and free elections around the world. Uh, we should not want, you know, Putin to be able to put, uh, you know, his flunkies uh, in power in, in, in countries around the world. Uh, that is an important part of the world from a natural resource and energy standpoint. Um, but, but yes, to, to answer your question, yes. Um, you know, the, the American government has a pretty good understanding of, of Putin's motivations at this point. Uh, he, he really only reacts to strength and he takes advantage of weakness. And, you know, whatever you want to say about Obama, Putin definitely thought Obama was weak and that he could take advantage of him, uh, that he could sort of bully him. Um, I don't think that that's really the, the view he has of Trump. I don't, I don't know how he views Trump, if he thinks Trump is more sympathetic, if he thinks Trump uh, is someone he can deal with, or if he, you know, thinks Trump is less predictable, sort of madman theory. I don't, I don't really know. Uh, but this gets back to that issue of why NATO is so important. Um, you know, without America's commitment to NATO, uh, it would be half or a quarter of as strong uh, as it is now. And um, I, I do think it. You know, this is an area where uh, I wish the president would would kind of shift his thinking a bit and soberly realizing that Russia does not have American best interests at heart. You want to talk about America first? Um, there is no more. Uh, you know, America first position than to recognize the the real threat that Putin poses, not just to America and her interests, uh, but to the to the to the, to the world. And we've seen that in Syria, uh, we've seen that in the region with Crimea, with Ukraine. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So um, we'll see how all that develops. Um, I do think uh, Belarus is going to be a very interesting situation. A couple of weeks ago, I would have said that Lukashenko was not going to survive. Uh, the, the protests we've seen in that country after that sham election have been uh, truly astounding, and I think they continue to this day. Um, I don't know how how that's ultimately going to get resolved, but if, if Putin were to send troops in, that would ratchet this up to a totally different level. And so that's where the United States and NATO have to change the uh, the thinking, have to change um, the equation. You know, if Putin right now thinks 
that he can go in there without any repercussions, then he'll do so. He hasn't done so yet. And the reason for that, I guess, is that he thinks NATO or the United States would would not respond, you know, would respond. Uh, but uh, so it, it's delicate. You don't want to sort of push him to take action, but you don't want him to think that taking action wouldn't merit a response either. Matt Makoviak, ladies and gentlemen, the chairman of the Travis County Republican Party, the founder of the Potomac Strategy Group, and the host of the Mac on Politics podcast. Matt, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the program today. But before we go, keep in mind, this is a very special episode of this NFL-centric podcast. Let's talk a little NFL, shall we? You were a big Pittsburgh Steelers fan, as you mentioned. And this is going to be a very interesting season for all teams, but I'm super interested in the Steelers because you obviously got Big Ben coming back. Got to see how much he has left. That defense, oh my God, it's amazing. Bringing in Mika Fitzpatrick virtually transformed that unit. And if Devin Bush could take another step forward to, to, to potentially be a Pro Bowl player this year, could the defense be even better than it was last year? Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you glad we put some sports into your sports podcast here at the end. Um, I I you know I, I'm hopeful every year with the Steelers, and I you know often have an overly confident you know s- sense going into the season. I do feel like they're a sleeper right now. You know, a lot of people are not not even predicting them to win their division, let alone to go very far in the playoffs. Everybody's hot on Baltimore again. Certainly, everybody's hot on Kansas City uh, in the AFC, and and I understand that. Uh, I do wonder if Lamar Jackson just had just a you know spectacular season and. It's hard to be that kind of quarterback. It's hard to not get injured. Um, it's hard to play that freewheeling style. You know, we've seen lots of, of incredible athletes over the years that have had incredible seasons like that. I'm, I'm reminded of someone like Randall Cunningham, Michael Vick, right? You go down the list of these types of quarterbacks that would have one or two years like that that were really, really strong. Uh, and eventually, you know, defense has figured out. They figured out how to contain them uh, either with uh, with outside linebackers or defensive ends or zone blitzing or, or whatever the, the scheme is. Uh, but as it relates to Steelers, uh, yeah, I mean, look, their defense, I think, is going to be better. Uh, one of the reasons for that is that their offense was so bad last year, historically bad, uh, that they were on the field a lot. And they were in a lot of bad situations, uh, short fields, quick turns, you know, bad, just really bad situations. And they're likely not going to be in that situation this year. The offense is going to have longer drives. They're going to be scoring more. They're going to be running the ball better. Um, I think they have, I believe, every starter. I believe I have this right. Either every starter or every starter but one on defense was a first-round pick. Uh, I don't know that there's any defense that, that can say that, and there may have. Ne- it's, it's possible there's never been a defense that could say that. Uh, and this is probably the last year. They're almost surely going to lose uh, Bud Dupree. Uh, it sounded like they're going to lose Cam Hayward, who they are, uh, are not going to sign to an extension before the season begins, and who will become a free agent at the end of the year. Uh, they're going to have to get T.J. Watt, excuse me, J.J. Watt, uh, re-signed at the end of the year. Uh, or, or franchise tag him. So I, I kind of feel like this may be the, the golden era in Pittsburgh serves football uh, in the current environment. That This is really their last chance. Roethlisberger has said he's going to play two more years. They have so many free agents at the end of this year. Juju Smith-Schuster, James Conner, uh, uh, Hayward, you know, Watt. I mean, they've got so much that they've got to do at the end of this year. The team's going to look very different next year. So I do think they're a sleeper. If Ben stays healthy, uh, I think they got a chance to be really, really, really good. Their first six games are all very winnable. The toughest game they play is Houston at home. The other five games are going to be favored in, I believe. So they could be five and one or six and zero oh, if all things go well. Uh, and I think they're likely to win the AFC North. I would, I would absolutely take those odds right now against Baltimore or somebody else. But look, this team is going to go as far as Ben, as Ben, as Ben takes them. Uh, he had serious surgery. Uh, he, he looks great. He's in the best shape he's been in a long time. They have a lot of weapons. Uh, they have a new uh, wide receiver from Notre Dame named Chase Claypool, who's a rookie who's been really impressive so far in the early 
early practices. So anyway, it's probably more than you wanted to know, but I, I'm very bullish on the Steelers. Uh, they've underperformed the last few years, either missing the playoffs or getting out early. Uh, they really should have probably performed at a better level. I think they've only won like one playoff game in four or five years at this point. So the fan base is definitely um, kind of, you know, ready, ready to to go the distance and give themselves a chance. I do think they have a very good chance. Kansas City is a favorite. Baltimore is a favorite. Uh, but I'd, I'd have to say Pittsburgh is right there with the rest of them. And, of course, injuries are going to determine a lot of this. Oh, absolutely. It all depends on what Big Ben has left. And I definitely agree with uh, your statement on the Steelers. They can't be slept on as a team that has a serious chance to overtake the Ravens in the division this year. But one last Steelers question for you. I am uh, beginning the cram sessions for my fantasy leagues in just a couple hours. And a guy who I have my eye on in Pittsburgh is Deontay Johnson. He um, uh, sort of broke out in many ways last year. And with Big Ben uh, back, uh, should he have enough left to take? I think Deontay Johnson could potentially break out this year. He is like, uh, I don't have anything against Juju Smith-Schuster, but uh, if you were to like uh, compare uh, Juju Smith-Schuster, Chase Claypool, and Deontay Johnson, if uh, there was like the big, the biggest big playmaker out of those three, I would say it's Deontay Johnson. Would you be surprised if Deontay Johnson becomes the go-to guy in the passing game at some point? Yeah. So, you know, this is one of the big questions, you know, Juju played last year as, as the number one receiver for the first time. And, and he, and, and I think it's fair to say he underperformed in almost every way. He only had a couple touchdowns. Um, he was really kind of, uh, you know, kind of invisible. Now, look, a big part of that is you had, you know, basically practice squad guys leading you at quarterback who really couldn't pass the ball longer than 20 yards with any real accuracy or consistency. And so that makes a huge difference. Uh, you know, Juju is an outstanding number two receiver. He has not proven he can yet be a number one. But when you are the number one, you get the best cornerback. You get the shutdown cornerback. And every team has a shutdown corner. Um, the pro, you know, the issue with Deontay is that he's an incredible slot receiver and he gets off the line quickly. Uh, he, he gets to max speed. He can, um, shift directions, uh, very, very quickly. Uh, in fact, what was the number I saw? He had, he was, I think the, um, he had the most yards after catch first or second in the, in the, in the league last year. Yeah. I forget what it was. It was like 80% of his yards were after the catch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so he is very shifty, very crafty. Uh, he also is, I pr- presume going to still be returning punts. So that that's another I don't play fantasy football. I'm just a Steelers fan. I root against you know the teams in our division, against the Patriots and for the Steelers. I don't want to be rooting for, you know, the Patriots tight end and the Bengals defense on a, on a Sunday. All I care about is the Steelers. But I get that a lot of people play fantasy football. I think Deontay, I don't know, you know, where he's gonna be in drafts and stuff like that. I imagine he's gonna be an undervalued stock, even though he had a great year last year. Uh, but I think with Ben back, I think I think Juju's gonna have a better year than he had last year. Is he going to be a top ten receiver? I don't think so, would be my guess. He is in a contract year. Um, if he's not going to be re-signed by the Steelers, which I think is unlikely, he's going to need a big year uh, so that he can get re-signed you know, somewhere else with the kind of money that he wants getting out of his rookie deal. So he's going to have a ton of motivation. Uh, he and James Conner both are going to have a ton of motivation because they're going to be free agents at the end of the year, and they need big years. And that's the other big question is Conner. Can he stay healthy? You know, He was a, a pro bowler two years ago as a rookie. Uh, he was, I think, also pretty underwhelming last year. He was out quite a bit, and he's had a lot of injury problems over the years um and so he's really got to find a way to stay on the field and get a thousand or 1200 yards and and, you know 10 or 12 touchdowns if he does that he's going to put himself in position to get signed somewhere else Uh, i I doubt the Steelers are going to sign him i think another guy to look at uh in you know later rounds is going to be benny snell who lost weight he was a stud you know uh running back at at kentucky in college uh he is going to be i think uh, uh he's going to start as a third down back but i think there's a really good chance by the end of the year he's their starting running back uh, so I think you could maybe get some some really good value out of him. 
Matt Bakoviak, thank you so much for joining us on this very special episode. I'm glad we were able to uh, bridge a, a lot of divides and reach a lot of consensus. And I definitely look forward to helping you reach consensus in the months and years ahead so our country can eventually recover and get to a better place. And that should definitely not be a partisan issue. Absolutely, David. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. That concludes this special episode of Sports Crunch. We'll be back next week to preview week one of the 2020 NFL season. But in the meantime, stay awesome by wearing a mask, washing your hands, social distancing, and above all, making a plan for how and when you're going to vote right now. Take care, everybody. <laughs>